Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Natalia Shkulova Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Paul Danieri about his book, Ukraine and Russia From Civilized Divorce to Uncivil War, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Paul Danieri is an expert on Eastern European and post Soviet politics. He teaches at the University of California, Riverside. He's author of a number of articles and books, including Understanding Ukrainian Politics, Power, Politics, and Institutional Design, and International Politics, Power, and Purpose in Global Affairs. His research has appeared in a number of uh, journals, including Comparative Politics, East European Politics and Societies, and Journal of Communist Studies and Transition Politics. Hello, Paul. Good morning. Thank you for joining me today. So your book in a chronological order describes the current war between Russia and Ukraine, and uh, it describes how the conflict developed. And I would actually like to start with the final part of your book uh, yeah. about the current stage of the war. How would you describe it? It's a, it's a not quite frozen conflict. Um, there's a, a low level of violence that continues to go on, uh, which is significant. It's significant that it's still going on because people are dying and, and there's a lot of cost. But it's equally significant politically that the cost in terms of lives is low enough so that both sides feel they can go on this way for some time. And um, that none of the outside actors seem to regard it as a status quo that's intolerable. And so this current situation, even though people are getting killed, seems unfortunately to be quite sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned that it's not quite a frozen conflict. How does it change? How does it differ from those in Moldova, for example, or in Georgia? Um, It's a little bit different in, in the sense that people are still getting killed. There are these there's firing back and forth across the line of control. That's the major difference. The similarity is that the line of control is essentially fixed, and um, certainly the the non-Russian sides really can't unilaterally change things. And Russia seems to be fairly satisfied with the status quo. And as long as those things are true, we will see this kind of stalemate, whether it's frozen or mostly frozen. Mm -hmm. You emphasize a few times that the war was not quite inevitable. And um, uh, many uh, people were shocked when uh, Russia annexed Crimea. However, uh, you also mentioned that Russia's claims for Crimea have been longstanding. And one of the uh, Russian sentiments uh, about some Ukrainian territories being uh, actually parts of Russia has never left the environment of the political elites in Russia. 
Yeah. Uh, when annexing Crimea, Russia acted firmly, as you describe it, and it didn't uh, look like it was. It, it did look like it was a very well planned action. Nevertheless, yeah. the subsequent actions point to something different, and you also uh, describe those uh, difficulties with which uh, Russia is struggling uh, today. Uh, one of the major questions today is how to maintain Crimea economically. Why does Russia seem to be struggling to maintain its vigor with which it entered Crimea? Uh, it's, it's struggling for a variety of reasons, um, one of which is gets back to why Crimea was transferred from the Russian Soviet Republic to the Ukrainian Soviet Republic back in 1954. There were various reasons why that was done, but a big one was it made no sense to connect it economically to Russia both geographically but also economically, um, it was connected to um, Ukraine. So that's a problem. Um, and, and the biggest issue there, frankly, is water, um, but also all kinds of logistics. Um, but also, even within Ukraine, Crimea, uh, um, like, like some other parts of Ukraine, um, the economy was largely unreformed. There's a fair amount of organized crime. And I think what Russia's annexation has done has led to a bit of a rejiggering of who was going to be in control economically in Crimea. And so there's been a, a battle for spoils. There's been a cutoff from Ukraine. And all of that is bad for the Crimean economy. At the same time, uh, Russia has its own internal issues. Russia is not in, uh, you know, a, a wealthy country in terms of per capita income. And so it doesn't want to spend too much. And then put on top of that two other things putting pressure on Russia right now. One is the fall in the price of oil, and the other is the, the COVID epidemic. So all of these things um, are, are making uh, the annexation of Crimea probably more costly than Russia intended, um, although I'm not sure anybody in Russia really cares. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, Russia, uh, at the moment of annexation, was, of course, um, manipulating that uh, uh, transfer of 1954 a lot, um, yeah. saying that it was a gift. Um, yes. But if we go back uh, to some historical facts, it doesn't appear that way. So how, how do you interpret this kind of manipulative tactics in terms of historical facts, which 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 is nothing new, but still, for some reason, it works, especially for uh, Russian uh, territory and for Russian history. Well, and I, and I would point out that um, this Russian line of historical argument has been extremely effective in the West as well. Why? Um, <laughs> not just among Russians. I, you hear this all the time, and one of the reasons I wrote the book was to try to uh, get a slightly less one-sided view of the history. Um, Russia's history and Ukraine's history are very uh, entangled. And going back a long way, you go back 500 years, and already the government in Moscow was basing its legitimacy in part on its claim to the legacy of Kiev, of Kiev and Rus from the medieval era. So it seems kind of crazy that in the year 2014, Putin was making claims about the ownership of Crimea that went back to the 10th century. But he was, and they seem to resonate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm not sure exactly what to say about that, but it does work. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it is effective. Uh, just to be clear, there are other interpretations that make no similar connection. I, 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 uh, somebody pointed out, who was it? Andrew Wilson, maybe? Somebody pointed out that if you wanted to look at history and say, to whom should Crimea belong? The answer would be Crimean Tatars. Mm-hmm. Um, they owned the territory, occupied the territory, governed the territory for the longest period, and it was conquered from them. Um, Putin's manipulation of uh, historical facts uh, works for the West. Um, and I asked why. Um, and um, I'm wondering uh, if this uh, kind of uh, manipulation um is effective because when we study Russia, we actually study only Russia without taking into consideration all other countries, for example, that uh, were part of the Soviet Union. Even today, unfortunately, there is this kind of, uh, uh, not misinterpretation, I would say simplification of the history of the Soviet Union when, uh, of course, uh, the name of the Soviet Union is associated with Russia and we study only the Russian language and we use only the Russian sources. And um, unfortunately, in the West, the situation changes very, very slowly. Yeah. The vast majority of uh, Americans who study this region, um, especially of my generation and older, um, went to Moscow, went to Leningrad or Petersburg. Um, a much, much smaller percentage right, went to other republics. But, but the point you raise is, is equal as well, is when we read the history We thought of it as the history of Russia. We did not think we were reading the history of Ukraine or Kazakhstan. It was Russian history. And um, more broadly, getting beyond just the, um, the specialist audience, every American, as poorly educated as we tend to be, knows what Russia is. Uh, Ukraine, not so much. And so there's still just this notion that uh, Ukraine's a part of Russia. Uh, but it also comes in when we tell the history of more recent things like World War II. Mm-hmm. We talk about the Soviet Army. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the biggest and the, 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 um, the exploits of the people in the Soviet Army, the sacrifices they made. I don't think most Americans can wrap their head around it compared to what the U.S. Army, what the U.S. population suffered. Uh, at the same time, the worst places for World War II right, were Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine. Uh, two million Ukrainians fought in the Red Army. Millions of Ukrainians. I know I'm telling you things you already know, but, um, but we lump that all together as the Soviets. And then we make this kind of step from Soviet to Russia. And so this, what was really a multi-ethnic, multinational effort in that war that uh, was concentrated in areas that aren't part of Russia today, um, gets regarded as a Russian effort. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of nuance, and most of us don't have the time for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, just uh, could you elaborate a little bit more um, for uh, our audience on uh, this usage, uh, again, effective usage of the term eternally Russian lands, which is probably uh, is uh, which is probably not used that much on an international stage, but domestically uh, it is manipulated a lot. And probably today uh, it's safe to say that it's part of the contemporary Russian identity. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, there have been these debates, uh, especially back in the 90s, after, after the Russian state first became a Russian state rather than a Soviet state, about 
uh, um, whether Russia should think of itself as an ethnically Russian state, a linguistically Russian state, or whether it was a multinational state. And um, regardless of how people came down on that debate, they agreed that even if you took a narrower definition of what Russia was, Ukraine was still part of it. Um, and, and, and there are all of these historical reasons, um, but also more modern reasons. So if you think about the governance of the Soviet Union, well, one of the most prominent groups in running the Soviet Union was this group that was known as the Dnipropetrovsk clan. Um, some of the key founders of the Soviet Union, people like Trotsky, right, came from the territory that is today Ukraine. And so for, for Russian, for many Russians, I think it's very hard to think of some parts of Ukraine as not being Russia because they were part of the Russian empire, maybe going back 300 years. At the same time, there are a lot of Russians, and Putin, I think, is one of them, who will say the, mo- the westernmost parts of Ukraine, what we would call Gal- uh, Galicia, uh, uh, Halicina, um, they're willing to write off. They see that as, as, this, as an alien thing, as Poland, mm-hmm. right? And, there's, and they sort of, there's this notion, right, to, to sort of partition Ukraine this way. Um, it's, it's based in a sense of what Russia is, and... One of the things I always point out to my students is, you're reading history, Russia's borders have never gone more than about 40 or 50 years without changing. So to ask the question historically, where's the Western border of Russia? Mm -hmm. This is hard. Um, It's always gone further West until it was pushed back further East. Yeah, I, I remember that quote that you mentioned in your book um, about what Putin said to one of uh, his American colleagues, what is Ukraine? One part is uh, uh, Russia and another part just belong to a different empire. So essentially, <laughs> what is Ukraine then, according to Putin? Um, so going back to your book, um, the West, as you describe it, uh, the West was shocked by uh, Putin's actions, um, including annexation of Crimea and the occupation of the Donbass. However, uh, not much uh, was done at that point. What could have been done differently? In terms of the Western reaction to, uh, yeah, so the, the West, one, once it happened, right, this was a, um, a so-called fait accompli, um, especially the seizure of Crimea. It was over before anybody really knew. This was a well-planned and shrewdly executed operation. And Um, if you think about the military options for the West to eject Russia from Crimea, we could throw World War III and and we still might not actually get the territory back, right? Very hard for NATO to project power, right, into that part of the Black Sea or across Ukraine. Um, uh, And relatively similarly in Eastern Ukraine, I think the big debate regarding Eastern Ukraine was whether to provide uh, more lethal hardware the Ukrainian armed forces. And uh, I, I think the argument against was that no matter how much we up the ante in terms of Ukrainian hardware, the Russians can always put more force on the table. And uh, there was an argument, there's an argument to me that said, yes, but we should raise the price and therefore this should be done. Um, but we would have to recognize that this would be raising the price for Russia at the cost of a lot of people's lives. And so Once it happened, the West had very few good options. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you could have pointed to would be an even stricter sanctions regime. Um, and I would have supported that. Uh, I, I think 
getting support for that in Europe was tricky. And frankly, I think if the Russians had not shot down uh, the Dutch aircraft, uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't a Dutch aircraft, but the flight from uh, the Netherlands to Malaysia in the summer of 2014, I don't think you would have gotten even the consensus that you did on sanctions against Russia. So you uh, describe this conflict and you start with the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah. uh, And uh, you connect it uh, to the uh, threat which uh, Russia saw in NATO. Yeah. Um, So, however, some of the facts that uh, you mentioned also point to uh, some uh, periods that precede 1991 because those historical um, historical um, uh, changes that took uh, place in the Soviet Union as well as, the, uh, as in the Russian Empire, they contributed to the formation of this kind of Russian mentality where Ukraine is just part of Russia and um, to actually probably some tradition in terms of the regime because there were some changes that were taking place in the um, early uh, 90s with uh, Yeltsin. However, for some reason, they uh, didn't develop further, and we got Putin back and his authoritarian uh, way of um, uh, rule. But the uh, overall, Russia seemed to be fine with Putin at these initial stages. And as you pointed out as well, there were some probably uh, oppositional views. However, they didn't get that much popularity, and they didn't go anywhere further, just uh, beyond some uh, just disagreement with the uh, main uh, strategy um, of um, implemented by uh, Putin. So uh, would you briefly describe these transitions um, that took place in the 90s, both probably in Ukraine and in Russia, but I believe Ukraine is quite a different case and maybe we can discuss it further. Yeah, the, the, I'm sorry, the transition from... This uh, move to more... Uh, democratic probably society yeah. well so this this i mean this happened very suddenly beginning really under gorbachev this opening of the of the russian society um and i didn't cover this a lot in the book what happened in the late 1980s just because if, if you're not careful your book's a thousand pages long um i didn't want to write that book um but um yeah so so russia democratizes in the late 80s and and of course there's this massive opening uh, after the coup attempt in 1991. And I, I stress really two things in the book. One is the status of Ukraine was, in fact, one of the main reasons why that coup attempt was thrown in the first place. And I don't think that's gotten enough attention. Right? Ukraine was not a side conflict. Ukraine was the crux of why those guys wanted to depose Gorbachev. Um, was was this new union treaty was going to be signed and they had to stop. Um, but the second thing then is is that um, while while Yeltsin is trying to democratize Russia and I think he's relatively sincere in his attentions, mm. very quickly, almost from the word go, right, uh, the same people who threw the coup were pushing back against democratization. Um, and one of the probably critical, I don't know if I would call it a mistake, but one of the critical decisions that was made in both Russia and Ukraine was not to hold new parliamentary elections immediately in 1991 or early 1992. 
so that you get to 1993 and Russia still has this parliament that was elected under the, um, under the Soviets. And there's this clash between the parliament and Yeltsin. Mm-hmm. And, I, and again, I stress this to anybody who will listen. We talk about Putin, what happens after Putin comes to power in, in, in 2000. September of 1993, Russian tanks shell the Russian parliament building. And Yeltsin more or less writes a new constitution all by himself, right, with his advisors. At that point, and it's, it's only barely two years since the coup, Russian democracy is on the rocks. Um, and I don't think that was appreciated enough at the time. I think the West then was put in this incredibly difficult position, which is either you support Yeltsin, who's a Democrat who's behaving like an authoritarian, or you save a bunch of people who are talking about democracy, but in fact are authoritarians, right? Which was sort of the the, the radical uh, conservatives in the um, in the Russian. And so I don't want to say that the die was completely cast at that point, but there was this dilemma from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure that's exactly the transition you wanted me to get at. Um, but the bigger point I would say is that up until about 2000, 2001, 2002, Russia was a pluralist society. Mm-hmm. There was an incredible range of political actors, an incredible range of voices, an incredible range of media outlets. Um, after 2000, right, that begins to narrow again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a really important, that's the important tor- turning point, um, is that uh, Yeltsin, I think, failed to consolidate democracy in Russia, but he certainly w- uh, um, maintained pluralism in mm-hmm. a lot of re- uh, respects mm-hmm. and the pluralism really begins to get reduced after 2000. Mm-hmm. So, what was the situation in Ukraine? Uh, because, in addition to some um, uh, economic struggles, and um, uh, we had a lot of struggles in terms of identity. Uh, we uh, voted for independence. However, I don't think that uh, the majority of people realized what that independence will involve. I think that's right. And I, I think you see this, one of the constant themes in Ukraine from, from that period, really right up until today, yeah. is a, while the vast majority of Ukrainians then and now supported independence, there was a division of opinion then on how closely to be related to Russia, especially economically. And again, even in Donbass, I don't think people wanted to be governed from Moscow anymore but they imagined the maintenance of very close trade relations with Russia with easy movement across the border and and so on and so forth. To people in Western Ukraine and other parts of Ukraine, that was less important. Um, But but more to the point, um, it was going, it was always going to be difficult to have that kind of relationship without joining some kind of Russian-led economic union. Um, because that was always the price that Russia was putting out there. And so, um, so it was tricky. I mean, again, I think, I think Russia had a, uh, I'm sorry, Ukraine as a country had a dilemma that it never fully faced, which was very difficult to both uh, maintain those relations with Russia and transition the country towards a Western economy um, uh, the way that they wanted to. And as Russia became more autocratic after 2000, that tension between ties with Russia and ties with the West 
got greater and harder to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe, in a nutshell, the, uh, um, the presidency of uh, Kravchuk and uh, Kuchma? Uh, Kravchuk started uh, with caution, I would say. He proceeded with caution all the time. And, yeah. um, uh, well, he didn't um, bring any kind of turmoil in the country, but um, somehow he um, managed to balance. With Kuchma, again, we had a different story, and uh, you um, described that in your uh, book in much detail. Yeah, so Kravchuk um, <clears throat> saw his job as being the first president and really as consolidating Ukrainian statehood. Um, and I think you can say that he did that with some success, but at a very high price. Mm-hmm. Um, and the price that he paid was uh, 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 an absolute uh, failure to address economic reform. And, and frankly, that's been an issue in Ukraine up to this date as well. Um, There was very little agreement across Ukraine uh, uh, about what to do with the economy. And there was, uh, frankly, I think a great deal of a lack of realism about the difficulties that Ukraine faced. So one of the things that Kravchuk did was he agreed with the, the nationalists on completely separating the economy from Russia as fast as possible. And this, there was this idea that Russia, that Ukraine has been exploited by Russia. And if we separate Ukraine from Russia, Ukraine will thrive. That was naive. Um, it was simply naive. And it was disastrous economically. So that by 1994, the economy was in free fall. Kuchma comes to power in the 1994 election and tries to rebalance the economy. He actually tries to push some very modest economic reform. He tries to reconnect, uh, take a more pragmatic attitude towards Russia. Um, but over time, he starts gathering power himself. Mm-hmm. And he starts to look like, like an autocrat. And, and so that leads to a separate set of problems, which are eventually going to end up in the, in the Orange Revolution in 2004, mm-hmm. which is a key turning point in the relationship with Russia. Mm-hmm. Theoretical viewpoint, uh, how would you describe this turn to a uh, more uh, autocratic regime uh, in both uh, Russia and Ukraine? Wh- wh- why does it take place? On a theoretical view, you know, there's an old, an old saying, you know, power corrupts and absolute power uh. corrupts. Absolutely. Um, we see in countries all over the world that uh, politicians try to get more power. And it's not because all politicians are aspiring autocrats. It's because democracy is a messy, frustrating way of doing things. And so invariably, leaders in democracies find their opponents blocking the things that they want to do. And they get frustrated and they try to find ways to outflank them, often which amount to seizing more power for the executive branch. And so this is what happens. In... Uh, in mature democracies, we there's there's enough institutional pushback that to frustrate those efforts. Although in some mature democracies now, we wonder how robust those institutions really are. In Ukraine and Russia in the 1990s, the institutions were incredibly weak. Mm-hmm. Um, they were brand new. There was very little history with them, and yet there were these enduring informal institutions. Patrimonialism, if you want to call it that, or patronage politics, uh, clan politics, those things uh, were effective ways of of maneuvering. And so both Kuchma in Ukraine and 
uh, Yeltsin and then, and then Putin in Russia, but also people all through the former Soviet Union use those levers to gather power and try to get things done. At the same time, there was an immense amount of wealth on the table to be redistributed. And that simply had the effect of corrupting politics. Mm -hmm. The way you described the events uh, that took place in Ukraine and uh, Russia um, <clears throat> uh, does look like uh, they were signs of some uh, possible developments that led to what happened in 2014. Uh, for example, Russia's claims for Crimea that were always there, maybe uh, more or less intense um, at some different uh, time periods. However, for example, when I was going to Crimea in the 90s, There were there was some sentiment about just uh, speaking Russian on the territory, but not being Russia. Uh, yeah. And um, I had relatives living in um, eastern parts of um, Ukraine, which are occupied today. And to be honest, there were no conversations about Donbas being uh, Russian or um, the citizens uh, wanting to be uh, Russians or even considered themselves Russians. They were speaking Russian, but it's quite different from being Russian. But again, according to Putin's rhetoric, it's the same to be Russian and to speak Russian. Uh, but uh, I think it's... Uh, so I have to jump in here because yeah. you've raised an incredibly important point, that, I, that, that um, which is this question of language. Um, and I'm going to try not to be too adamant, but the idea, uh, and Putin has used it masterfully, and again, it's been incredibly effective in the, in the West. Well, these people speak Russian, don't they? Therefore, Russia, right? Canadians and Americans and South Africans and Australians and New Zealanders all speak English, and nobody in 100 years has thought we should be, Right. Uruguayans and Argentinians and so on all speak Spanish. Nobody thinks it should all be part of Spain. And I could go on and on. Um, this idea that the language drives the um, state boundaries is, I think it's, it just doesn't pass the most basic bit of scrutiny. And yet, Putin has pushed it in a huge variety of people who ought to know better. Uh, scholars, policymakers around the world have fallen for it. So sorry, that's my little diatribe, um, but we really ought to do better. Yeah, yeah, um, of course. Uh, and uh, this sentiment uh, is still being used by Putin and um, uh, for, uh, to develop further his idea of protection of uh, yeah. Russian speakers. Yeah. Right. It's very world. clever. A Russian speaker is a Russian and therefore needs the protection of the Russian government. Right, right. Sorry, go ahead. So uh, my question was about the, those early signs um, that yeah. uh, uh, could uh, probably somehow um, uh, help us see what uh, can happen in the East or uh, in Crimea. However, those signs were dismissed. On the other hand, uh, in Western scholarship, there was this discussion on a scholarly level about some future developments that um, Russia uh, could take. But uh, to be honest, I didn't come across that much of these conversations in Ukrainian scholarship, for example, back in the 90s. Yeah. So, and uh, I took this wonderful uh, course with Professor Ron here at uh, Indiana University, uh, and I was just amazed about uh, amazed about that amount of information that was written back in the early, late 90s and um, that were actually predicting what happened in 2014. So my question is why Ukrainian politicians 
chose the route that they chose and because more often than not, not all of them eventually would choose some sort of, of a union with Russia, which probably immediately means some sort of dependence on Russia, instead of going to the West. Is it just because it was more simple, it was easier, because there is much more, um, I don't know, understanding because of uh, cultural uh, similarities, uh, however, that uh, complex and contested history that existed between the, the two states um, was quite dismissed, I would say, and... Um, we all chose to focus on worked for us and that didn't stir any kind of contestation. Again, it led to the situation where those contestations were concealed and they were not dealt with. Um, and uh, today we have what we have. We have what we have. Maya Um So it's a big question, but I do think that uh, if we think about the opportunities that were missed in the 1990s, uh, I think there's three parts of this. The first part is in Ukraine, which was, again, there was very little appetite for real economic reform in Ukraine. And in fact, the um, the asset stripping and rent seeking were rampant. And that made it much easier to do business with Russia than with the European Union, right? because the European Union did not want to do things this way. Right. Uh, Every Western aid package, whether it came from the EU or the IMF or the United States, Ukraine would never quite meet what was at what was required. It would never do what it had agreed to do. It would always do 10 or 20 percent less and then leave the Western donors saying, well, do we give the next bit of money or not? Mm -hmm. Russia never made any requests other than we want you to join up with Russia. Um, but they were actually very patient. And so uh, Ukraine, the way that politics was done domestically in Ukraine, and think of particularly under Kuchma, his brand of corruption and graft and machine politics, the Russians were totally comfortable with that. And not only were they comfortable with it, but they saw that they could exploit it. So part of the story is in Ukraine. But part of the story is in Russia, in that Russia loved to do business with Ukraine this way because it allowed them to get allies in Ukraine that could then pursue their issues, right? Mm -hmm. Victor mm -hmm. Medvedchuk. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. The West not only did not want to do that kind of business with Russia, but, um, but especially in the 90s, and really even until the late uh, uh, part of the first decade of the 2000s, the EU was totally fixated on its own expansion and really could not focus very much on Ukraine. Um, one of the things that was crucial in transforming the post-communist countries to the west of Ukraine was this potential for EU membership. Um, the EU never offered that to Ukraine. And in a way, that was convenient both for the EU leaders and for the Ukrainians. Um, because the Ukrainians never reformed, the EU never really had to take them seriously as potential members. And because the EU never took Ukraine seriously as a potential member, Ukrainians never had to take reform seriously. Mm -hmm. And it was this, it just worked for everybody. Speaking about corruption, uh, I guess, well, many people in Ukraine asked themselves at some point this question, how Yanukovych managed to come back to the political stage after 2004. Yep. I still ask myself that question. Um, that was one of the most shocking things yeah. that's happened. And, you know, um, 
So the story of Ukrainian nationalism, going back at least to the early 20th century, is they always managed to divide their forces at the crucial moments. I won't tell you the whole history of the 20th century. One of the reasons Ukraine became independent in 1991 was at that moment, people actually pulled together, Mm -hmm. right? The national communists allied with the so-called national Democrats, and they stuck together and they made Ukraine independent. But of course, they fragmented immediately afterwards. And the reason I raise this is because one of the reasons Kuchma gained as much power as he did was that the opposition was always split, right? Yushchenko backed Kuchma till very late in the game. Then he pulled together with Tymoshenko, they threw the Orange Revolution, and immediately they started hating on one another. I mean, it was vicious. It, so that's the short answer. Mm-hmm. The short answer is the, the anti-Yanukovych forces divided. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is the pro-Yanukovych forces, right? The, power, the party of regions stuck to its guns in eastern Ukraine and delivered the vote. Like a classic political machine, they turned out the vote. Um, one other thing that happened on top of that was the recession of 2008. The, um, that election in 2010 came at a time when you, the Ukrainian economy had suffered. Tymoshenko was the incumbent prime minister. She was saddled with that record. You know, In any country across the world, the best predictor of how a presidential election is going to turn out is how the economy is doing. The incumbent party tends to lose when the economy is doing badly. Tymoshenko was the incumbent. Mm-hmm. Uh, In one of your chapters, you also describe how Putin's plan uh, to seize more Ukrainian lands, including Odessa, uh, failed. And uh, his attack in the East, uh, which has been, of course, tragic and traumatic, has not been as successful as the one uh, that he performed in Crimea. You also mentioned that these territories, uh, similarly to uh, Crimea, are primarily inhabited by Russian-speaking citizens, but to speak Russian, as we discussed, doesn't mean to be Russian. So uh, uh, Putin actively... uh, implemented uh, this kind of uh, belief that to be a Russian uh, means uh, to speak Russian and and vice versa. Uh, But this strategy uh, failed uh, in uh, eastern parts of Ukraine. Uh, So what do these failed projects to resurrect the so-called Novorossiya signal to you in terms of both Ukraine and Russia? Yeah, this is a a really good question. In terms of Russia, one of the things it tells us is that they believe their own propaganda, right? They really believe this idea that this whole huge swath of Ukraine, if people were just given an opportunity, they would they would bolt, um, and that they could use these very small groups of pro-Russian activists to seize power. Um, that's what it tells us about what it tells us about Ukraine is exactly what you mentioned, which is that uh, uh, there are a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians who will fight and die for Ukraine. And I don't think uh, the Russians expected that. It's the sort of things a lot of Ukrainians have been trying to explain to the world for a long time. My uh, colleague Taras Kuzio keeps on pointing out that in terms of people killed in the Donbass, the largest number comes from Dnipro, right? They're not from Western Ukraine or even Central Ukraine. They're from Eastern Ukraine fighting for Ukraine. Um, Kharkiv right, uh, uh, Eastern Ukrainian city, uh, had some of these people come and try to take over the center of the city, and local forces simply ejected them. Mm-hmm. Um, again, even in Donbass, in, in Luhansk and Donetsk, the number of people trying to separate them from Ukraine was tiny um, and couldn't withstand even the, let's face it, 
fairly pathetic Ukrainian armed forces. Yeah. They were saved only by the intervention of Russian troops. Yeah, yeah that's true. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's shown that the Ukrainian, as weak as the Ukrainian state is, and it's weak in a lot of ways, uh, it does essentially have the loyalty of its people. And I think that surprised the Russians, and it may have surprised some Ukrainians as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the main arguments of your book is that Russia, since the collapse of the USSR, has felt threatened by the expansion of NATO. And in fact, you connect this threat with the escalation of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Today, more Ukrainians support Ukraine's membership uh, in the NATO than before the conflict uh, broke out. What's your estimation of the further developments? And actually, uh, I-, I guess uh, just two days ago, this conversation about Ukraine and NATO came up in the news and they are working on some new programs and strategies. Yeah, I, I've always thought that the conversation about Ukraine and NATO was a bit fantastical mm-hmm. in the sense of, I think it's very hard to imagine it happening. And I think, unfortunately, the conversation gives ammunition to, uh, to the, this notion that Russia is somehow threatened by NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, two points. One is getting a vote in NATO in support of Ukrainian membership is going to be difficult, if not impossible. And this was true all the way back in 2008 when the United States put immense pressure on the allies to uh, give Ukraine and Georgia a membership action plan. And the Germans and the French said no. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but it's also the case that in Ukraine, while sentiment in favor of NATO membership has increased, it's still not a majority sentiment in mm-hmm. most polls. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if it were to actually become a serious issue and put to a referendum, I don't think it would win. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I say I think it's fantastic. I don't think NATO is going to offer it, and I don't think the Ukrainians would accept it. Uh-huh. Um, but it's this political football. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but 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 still, but still, this conversation is always on the table. Yeah, the conversation is on the table, and in, in, um, you know, in some respects, it might be healthy as a reminder to Russia to say there are other things that can happen that you don't that you would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flip side is, from the Russian perspective, there is this line in the Russian narrative about the occupation of Donbas that says. The reason to occupy Donbass is that NATO has a rule that says they won't accept new members that have ongoing conflicts. Mm-hmm. And so there is this idea that as long as you keep this conflict in Donbass going, uh, Ukraine can't become a member of NATO, and that justifies keeping it going forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and how do you um, evaluate this new con- uh, these new uh, negotiations uh, that Ukraine is um, um, conducting with that group from uh, Russia and uh, yeah. some representatives? Well, I feel bad uh, in a way for for President Zelensky. Mm-hmm. He came to, to power promising peace, which was just, I think, delusional. But I think he actually believed it. Mm-hmm. I think he thought that that um, I think he's one of those who actually believes Russian Russia and Ukraine and Russians and Ukrainians are natural friends. Mm-hmm. Um, he's moved very seamlessly across those two countries in his business and in entertainment linguistically. Um, he didn't take the conflict seriously in a way and thought that it would easily be resolved. So now he's trying 
everything he can. And um, he's getting assailed by the Ukrainian, uh, not just the nationalists, but by a broad spectrum of Ukrainian opinion. And he's getting basically nothing from Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think there, there, there may be a little bit more method to this than we think, which is that um, maybe I'm giving Zelensky too much credit, but I do think one of the things that he is doing is showing the West that uh, Ukraine is willing to come to the table, but Russia is not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that may be of some value because the biggest danger for Ukraine in this whole thing right now is that the West just decides to cut a deal with Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so he may have been effective to some extent in mm-hmm. pushing that off a little bit. We always finish these interviews with uh, the question about your uh, future or about your current project. Is it uh, in, yes. in any way connected with um, your uh, latest book? Yeah, so, so two things I'm doing right now um, that are both connected to this, to this project. One is uh, um, I have been looking at election outcomes um, in eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a, a paper that looked at the 2004 elections. And basically what, what my argument is, is that when you take those voters out of Donbass, you do something very paradoxical, which is you take all the pro, you take a huge number of pro-Russian voters out of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And actually, Russia should want those voters back in. And paradoxically, Ukrainian nationalists might want them out. So there's this implication that both sides should be trying to accomplish the opposite of what they're actually trying to accomplish. Um, I'm working right now uh, looking at the 2019 mm-hmm. election results. I did a paper on this a year ago. So that's so I think if there's a potential for peace, one way of, of getting to peace or at least a really frozen conflict, mm-hmm. the idea that Ukraine just says, we don't need to rush to get those territories back because we're better off without their voters. Mm-hmm. And in Kiev, people will say, yes, we can't say this publicly, but of course. But nobody will say it publicly, at least in Ukraine. Um, but the other project I'm working on is a project to sort of look at what are the prospects for peace? What are the possible routes to peace? And, and unsurprisingly, from everything I've said, I'm not especially optimistic. I can think of a lot more reasons for a paper about why there won't be peace than how to get there. But I do think if we, I think even if we're pessimistic, which I am, we still have to try to think about how might we get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's so that's the other line of research I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for this conversation. And um, I've, uh, I've been interviewed a lot, but I've rarely been asked such good questions. <laughs> thank you, and uh, thank you for for your latest book that covers the uh, contemporary history of Ukraine and contemporary conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, today I spoke with uh, Paul Denyuri about his book Ukraine and Russia from Civilized Divorce to Uncivil War, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.